Thank you. <clears throat> so one of the things we've learned this morning is that sometimes it's a good thing to be a little sheepish. <laughs> this to get your attention here. Let me ask you this morning, when you sit down and you just read these verses that Jana read, how does it uh, initially, how does it make you feel? Whoops. Yeah. A lot of times what it does is it, you know, we start looking around and it makes me feel a little guilty, maybe a little uncomfortable, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, maybe I need to be doing more. That kind of thing, right? And the thing that, he, that Jesus is getting across here is that he's talking about the lives of ordinary people. You remember in Luke when um, 3 verse 8, he's talking about John the Baptist and he was preparing the way for the coming of Christ. And as he was baptizing people, he was baptizing them um, as an outward symbol of repentance that took place inside. Now repentance is not just sorrow, sorry I did wrong, that's not repentance. It begins there, but it has to go on to a change in behavior. And if the change in behavior never occurs, then we haven't had true repentance, we're just sorry. And so oftentimes we're sorry people, but there's been no genuine repentance, no change in behavior. So when these people were talking to John as they were being baptized, they said, okay, uh, what does that mean in our lives if we've genuinely repented? And he starts giving them some very, very practical examples. Um, he, well, let's look at it in Luke chapter 3. <coughs> so he tells them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, show by their lives. And so they said, what should we do? And so he says, well, the man who has two, two tunics should share with the one who has none. The one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? He said, don't cheat. Take, don't collect any more than you are required to. Soldiers came to Luke, uh, came to John the Baptist in Luke's gospel. And they said, what should we do? Notice what he didn't tell them. He didn't tell the tax collector to leave his job. He didn't tell the soldiers to quit being soldiers. He said, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now these are very practical, ordinary things. Oftentimes we wish he would tell us some great spiritual thing because what does this mean? Well, it means I have to change how I'm looking at things, how I'm looking at people, how I'm looking at myself. That has to change and that's what repentance is all about. So in Matthew <clears throat> chapter 25, it's this kind of thing that Jesus is telling the people who have come to him. 
says when God brings together all nations, he's going to judge them by what they have done, how they have lived their life. And notice he says to the ones on his right, to the sheep, come you who are blessed by my Father to the, to the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So God had it in mind to give us everything from the very beginning. Now, the ones on the left, the goats, he tells them that they are cursed and they are to be cast into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This eternal fire was never meant to be the abode of people. We get included by the way that we live our lives and the way that we relate to God. Now that's the thing I want to point out this morning. There's one question that's repeated many times in this story. Do you remember which question it is? And both the sheep and the goats ask it. What did they say? When? That's a good question. And so what Jesus says to the ones on his right, he goes through this list. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I needed clothes. I was sick. I was in prison. These are people that we see around us every day. We see these people every day. There's a, a quote I want to give from Trevor Beeson. This is what he said. Food for myself is a material question. Food for my neighbor is a spiritual one. Writing about that, uh, Eddie Askew says this. If I see my neighbor in need, his problem may be physical, but my reaction to his need is dependent on my spiritual growth and sensitivity. If I turn my back on my neighbor's hunger or illness to concentrate on spiritual ministry, can it be born of genuine concern? We should be content with nothing less than a full Christian ministry embracing the total of the total man. And that's where Jesus is talking about here. Oftentimes we've been accused um, of separating spiritual wealth and health from social wealth and health. And so usually it's the, um, it's the more conservative who concentrate on the spiritual and the more liberal who concentrate on the social. And both are wrong. Both are wrong. Because you cannot have one without the other. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. The book of James puts it this way. To the one who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Because we can't say, I didn't know. However, that's not the question. Um, the question is, when did we see you like that? And that's the same question, by the way, that the, that the goats say. When did we not do that for you, Lord? If I had seen you there, I would have helped you. Well, maybe not. Because when Jesus walked the earth, he looked just like everybody else. Wasn't particularly handsome or strong 
or beautiful, wasn't particularly wealthy. And if he was walking in a crowd, you would not be able to pick him out just by appearance's sake. So the question is, when did I see you and minister? Now, the important thing for me in this story is that neither the sheep or the goats were consciously aware that they had done something good or something wicked. They weren't doing these things in order to get into heaven. It's not a works righteousness thing. That's not what Jesus is saying. These people who were the sheep were surprised when Jesus started telling them. It was, he's looking at their heart. He's looking at the motive. What Jesus is talking about here is not something that we're doing to impress God or anybody else. It's not something we're doing to make ourselves feel good. It's something, it's a natural response for the person in Christ. And that's the point I think that he's making. The way that we live our life is an indication of our relationship with God. So if someone had followed you this last week, 24 hours a day, every day, and they took a video of your life, recorded the, the, the sounds, things you said, the way that you said them, things you did, why you did them. If they did that for a whole week, and then we sat down and looked at it, what would people say, or who would people say you and I worshipped? What would they think, just by looking at our life this past week, what would they say about our priorities? What would they say about your life? What's number one priority in your life based on how you're, you're living? I think this is where Jesus is coming from. These people, because of their relationship with God, these are just the natural outworkings of the love of God lived through them. For the people who don't know God, they're living for themselves. They don't care about these other people. Now, if you had told them, look, that's, that's the son of God right there. Oh, man, everybody will suck up to him, you know. <laughs> try, to be, try to earn points kind of thing. But if you don't know that he's there. One of the things that's distressing to me in um, the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, now, chapters 2 and 3 were the Holy Spirit speaking, taking the life and ministry of Christ, applying it to those churches. Churches made up of people. And what I'm concerned about is the first church and the last. First church, you know, that's the church at Ephesus. They are strong spiritually. I mean... Paul spent a considerable length of time there. John lived there the latter part of his whole life. Uh, Apollos has been there. Aquila and Priscilla were there. I mean, these, the heroes of the faith were there. Uh, Timothy was a pastor of the church for a while. On and on, these great... And so theologically, they were solid. And they had been put to the test by false teachings and things growing up within... And they had put it to the test and they had stood for the truth. They had a lot of things going their way. But in the midst of all of that, 
Jesus said, I've got something against you. You've left your first love. You've left your first love. And then he said, I know your works. So leaving their first love was seen in how they were living their life. So there are people who are so righteous that you can't get close to them because you're not good enough. That's people of Ephesus. If you're not, uh, you know, following the line, then there's no love there. There may be truth, but you can beat someone to death with the truth. And you can run people away with the truth. Jesus did not. And he tells them that they need to do their first works. So you can read opening chapters of Acts and see what those works are. The last church, church at Laodicea, this church was a very well-off church materially. We are self-sufficient. We have need of nothing. And the problem with, with affluence, there's nothing wrong with affluence, by the way. Uh, money's money. Uh, it's neither good nor bad. It's how you got it and how you use it. That's the important thing. But the church there at Laodicea, they had become comfortable. And in their comfort, they looked around and they said, you know what? We're okay. We don't need a thing. We are self-sufficient. Thank you very much. But when we get that way in our outward life, we tend to feel that way in our spiritual life. And that's where the problem is. Because you remember... The church at Laodicea, Jesus was on the outside knocking. He wasn't in the church. He wasn't needed. Jesus told the church at Ephesus, unless you repent and do the first works, return to your first love, I will take your candlestick and remove it. You will lose your place. Because the key here is relationship to the Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 23, Jesus is talking about knowing people by their fruit, by the things they see in a person's life, by the things they hear coming out of a person's mouth by the attitudes that are expressed in our relationships with other people. And then he says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. I think many of the goats would be here in this category. Many of the goats would be able to say this. Did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons, perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. 
away from me, you evildoers. So the focus here is not on doing good deeds. The focus is on right relationship that results in a change of lifestyle, change in priorities, change in values, changes the way we see ourselves and the things that God has provided. It changes how we look at the blessings we receive and how we share those with others. It changes the way that we look at other people and how we relate to those other people. Now Jesus is talking about the fringes of society here. Prisons, hospitals, um, people you meet on the street. When you see someone who is begging, what's the automatic thing comes into your mind? We make a value statement, don't we? I wonder how Jesus looks at those people. And it's not a question of, well, I, that person, I, I guess I'm a Christian, I need to give them. That's not it. That's not it. That's the guys back here in Matthew 7. In your name, didn't we do all these things? But the heart was not there. And that is the heart of the matter. As we look at John, at Matthew 25, I think we also need to look at John 21. John 21 is after the resurrection and Jesus, uh, they're up at the Sea of Galilee again and the disciples are out fishing because they didn't know what else to do. At this point, they wasn't sure exactly what God wanted them to do. And it's the bookend of Peter's call. He had a first one in Luke and Luke chapter 5 where that's Luke's version of the account of Jesus first calling Peter. And they had this miraculous catch of fish. And Jesus got down on his knees before the, Jesus and said, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus looked at him and he says, no, from now on, you're going to be a fisher of men. Leave your nets and come with me. Well, they've had all these long um, years of ministry and Jesus is there and Peter's walking with them and they got very close. And then it came time, you remember, for the crucifixion. Peter makes great promises. And late at night and early in the morning, he had broken everyone. Kind of like us. Y'all make New Year's resolutions? What's the point? <laughs> so, now Jesus has risen from the dead. And again, for Peter, that's a bit of good news, bad news. Uh, good news, he's excited that God has raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, a little fearful because the last time Jesus looked at Peter in the Gospel of Luke is when Peter denied Jesus the third time. The rooster crows. Peter looks over at Jesus. He's standing on trial for his life in front of the high priest. All it says is Jesus turned and looked right at Peter. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now that's the last time Peter had seen Jesus before the resurrection. And so now he knows that the Lord's risen, but he's still not sure what the relationship is. Has he transformed from a sheep into a goat? And he's a little concerned about it. John 21, Jesus, exactly the same thing. No fish, he 
tells them where to find the fish. It's a miracle, miraculous fish. One of the other disciples says, pokes Peter, says, that's the Lord. They couldn't see because it was early in the morning. Peter jumps in the, in the water and swims. And um, Jesus has breakfast prepared for them. They're hungry, they're tired. Jesus meets their need. There is no division between the physical need and the spiritual need. And if you're meeting one without the other, you've only done half a job. So Jesus, after the meal, goes on a walk along the, sea sh- the, the lake shore with Peter. This is personal. This is private. And Jesus begins to look at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord. What was Jesus' response? Feed my sheep. Jesus asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Again, Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Take care of the sheep. Ask him three times. He had denied him three times. And the third time, Peter's grieved. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Somehow we've missed that. Love of God expressed in us through love of each other. That was the thing that Jesus kept repeating in John 17, the longest and greatest prayer that we have record of from Jesus. Love one another. The last commandments that he was giving, love one another as I have loved you. Take care of each other. Look for each other. Provide for each other. Lay down your lives for each other. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Jesus said, you are my friends. And then he went to the cross. It's not just words. So it's how we live, how we put in practice our relationship with the Lord. If Christ lives within our hearts, his attitude toward the people that we see has not changed. Joanna was sharing with me this morning from Psalm 84 from uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message. And this is how he translates this. Our lives become the roads God travels. Well, that's pretty cool. Our lives become the roads that God travels. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the body of Christ is the body of Christ. We are his hands and feet. Jesus said, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. They know my voice and they will not follow another. I know my sheep and I can call them by name. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's writing to the church of Corinth, this very troubled church. He's been talking about marriage and food sacrifice to idols and all these things because they're struggling with how, does, how do you take the gospel of Christ cross-culturally? What are the demands that you make on a new culture that you're coming in? And um, 
Let me just read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. Remember, he's going to go on and say, at best, we see through a glass darkly, through a foggy window. But we are known, and one day we will know in that way. But verse 3 is the important one. The man who loves God is known by God. Jesus said to his disciples, you are my friends. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and they won't follow anyone else. Now, it says the same thing in the book of Galatians, chapter 4. He's talking about turning from idols to serve God. In verse 8 of Galatians 4, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. The idols, our addictions, uh, things that control us instead of us controlling them, our weaknesses. Verse 9, But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Peter, what are you doing with the fishing nets again? You can't go back. That's your old way of life. It's gone. Now you get to walk in newness of life. Psalm 91. It's a psalm that talks about God's response to those who put their faith and trust in Him. Psalm 91 is what we started this morning, our call to worship. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. It's interesting that when Jesus in John chapter 15 talks about abiding in Him, remaining in Him, living in Him, He who lives in the shadow of the Almighty. The other end of this psalm, He talks about God's provision, His protection, His watching over. But look in verse 14. This is God's response to the person who puts his or her trust fully and completely in in God. God says, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. How will he show him his salvation? Every day. God walking the roads of your life and mine. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we keep our eyes upon you to be able to see people around us through your eyes. To be touched with the things that touch you. To be moved by the things that move you. We ask that you would watch over us. And that you would draw us such 
a way that we are so close to you that you are living your life in us and through us. The old is past, the new has come. Help us to walk in that newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the church, we are the body of Christ. Paul says Christ is the head of the church. We are his hands and feet. What happened to the hands and feet of Jesus? Nail prints. Life given in sacrifice for someone else. None of self, looking to the others and looking to the Lord. So I'm glad Ella there is with us today. Would you mind just standing up just for a minute, please? I'll use you as an illustration. There's Ella. She's new. And she's beautiful. Thank you. And we rejoice in that new life. Now what would happen if 50 years from now you come back and Ella was exactly like that? I'm asking what is your spiritual age? I'm thinking about it because yesterday was the anniversary of my accepting Christ as my Savior. It was on a Saturday night in a high school auditorium downtown Houston, Youth for Christ rally. It was a long time ago. So I'm asking, what is your spiritual age? Because I'm asking myself the same thing. What if in 50 years we come back and Ella hasn't changed at all? She hasn't grown. Um... She still acts the same, responds the same, eats the same. Oh, but it's okay because one time, 50 years ago, I had an experience of being born again. Well, we could say, well, it's okay for her to remain that way because once upon a time, January, what, January 3rd, January the 3rd, Ella had an experience of being born. And that's all it takes, right? For life. You don't have to grow. You don't have to mature. You don't have to do anything. You've got an assurance that I've, I've arrived in this world because I had an experience of being born. Well, that would be horrible, wouldn't it? If she hasn't changed at all. Still healthy, still 50 years. Nothing's changed. Many people, Christians, walked with, I met the Lord 50 years ago. Is there any difference in your life? Am I still living the same way I was at that? Well, it's okay because I had an experience of being born again. Well, that's not the, that's the beginning. We were never intended to remain like that for 50 years. Many people in the church think we are. It's okay. That's normal. Because I had an experience one time and that set me up for the rest of my life. I don't have to change anything. We're just fooling ourselves. We become goatish instead of sheepish. <laughs> so I'm asking you today, as I'm asking myself, it's 51 years ago for me, what's changed? Is there any growth? Is there any development? Is there any, anything going on here? I disappoint myself sometimes. I think I ought to be farther than I am. And I, I guarantee the opportunities to be farther than I am were there. So... I just want us to take note here as the body of Christ. When we're thinking sheep and goats, and sheep and goats primarily 
has to do with relationship to the shepherd. That's where the real crux of the matter is. Crux means cross. That's where the real cross is, our relationship with him. John said, if we say that we love God and hate our brother, we're liars. Because you can't know God and have that kind of an outlook to your fellow man. Impossible. So that's why Jesus died. To take people like Peter, people like me, people like you, and to transform us, to help us quit being so goatish and become more sheepish. Um, to be people who by nature in our everyday walk without thinking about it. It's not a, a decision that we make. It's a response that comes from the heart. That's the kind of thing that we worship God in spirit and truth. That's God walking down the roads of our lives. That's possible because Jesus walked that road and what he's inviting is for us to participate with him. It's an incredible invitation, isn't it? To participate in what God's doing. That's an active thing. You can't participate by sitting on a chair. You can't. Participation is active involvement. And so that's why Jesus died, to make that possible from a sincere, clean heart. And one that's sincere and clean, it's, it's self-conscious-less. You're not thinking of self. You're not thinking about what you're doing. You're walking with the Lord and you're responding to people and needs. You're just responding. Jesus saw us. This is his first response. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. What did Jesus get out of it? Nails, spears, crosses. My body is broken for you. After supper, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Each of you drink from this cup. This cup's a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you. It's for the forgiveness of sins. And so through giving his body, through giving his blood, he's inviting us to participate in his life. Because food is what gives us life. And Jesus says, I am with you to impart to you my life. And it's a call to participation and what he is doing in this world today. We are his body. We are his hands and feet. What is Christ doing in Uvalde, Texas today? Will those who are serving communion please come forward?